Welcome to Think Like a Penguin, The Art of Flying. This is the podcast to help you think outside the box, live more confidently against the grain and become your more authentic self. Penguins don't traditionally fly, but what's to say they won't one day? Welcome to this episode and this is going to be all about food. I'm going to go quite deep and heavy with my past experience with food. I did have an eating disorder for just over a decade, probably all up, and I'm going to share with you my experiences through that time and what I've learned from that time and how I've got to a place now where I can genuinely enjoy food, I look forward to eating, I have a really healthy relationship with food, and we're going to cover a lot. So. I will start by saying I'm not a qualified psychologist. There are many, many people who are qualified to advise and help and support you on your journey with food if you have some real issues in that area. What I do have is heaps of experience going from a kid that just loved eating and didn't even really think about what I was eating, just made sure I could eat enough and I was always hungry and growing and active to a teenager who did everything to avoid eating, hated food, had a fear of food, um, had a really unhealthy, damaging relationship with food, and then now into adulthood um, where I love food. So I think probably I will start by sharing my story. Just a warning, this might be triggering for some of you, and especially if you have friends or family that you know who are struggling with food, then um, just a warning that I'm going to be sharing quite a lot and it's going to be quite intense. But hopefully from me sharing this and being vulnerable with my story, you may feel empowered and inspired to um, seek some more advice or even take some little tips from what I share. So essentially I started to restrict how much I ate or the certain foods that I ate when the rest of my life started to feel like it was unravelling. So at about the age of 12, you could say my life was pretty perfect. I was on the trajectory for um, a national selection for a sport. I had blossomed into quite a tall and, um, well, athletic-y but slim person and was selected to trial for a modelling agency. I was doing pretty well at school, I loved my sport, and yeah, feeling pretty good about life. It was on the up, and then within the space of a year, a lot of challenges happened, and in no way am I blaming these things for my uh, downfall with my relationship with food, but they certainly had an influence on my need to feel like I wanted to control something. So uh, my parents separated, my grandma died, I was dealing with figuring out my sexuality, I felt the stress of school, I am dyslexic so trying to work through that, it was all quite a lot all at once and obviously even just being a teenage girl in itself is quite a stressful, anxious time. So I started to restrict uh, what I would eat or how much of something I would eat, start to kind of skip meals, I wasn't really sure why I was doing this, it was only much much later, years later, that I had the hindsight to realise that because the outside world felt unsafe and out of control, I therefore controlled one thing that I could, and that was my food intake, and this is quite common 
for the start of eating disorders, but it's also scarily common in everyday life. So I've, I do find it quite um, shocking, intimidating, sad, sometimes a bit confronting when people so openly admit to being on a diet or proudly confess to being vegan but not really sure the motives behind it or they do these juice cleanses and to me obviously and this is very personal but this is from personal experience I see that as mm, why are you controlling your food what is that giving you in terms of a relief from other areas in your life that you can't control or that feel out of control so I will talk about this and the use of food for controlling in much more detail but um yeah, essentially I started by restricting in order to feel like I had a control over something. And then that turned into a much more dangerous and severe condition and that was anorexia. So I was probably restricting my food, over-exercising for about a year until it started to get medically dangerous and I lost a lot of weight. My sisters were the first to notice. They had a friend who was anorexic and they kind of set the alarm bells to my parents. Within three years, I was in a hospital for children with all manner of mental health conditions. But fortunately for me, I was one of only two people in there with anorexia. I think the culture and the environment of lots of children or adults with anorexia all in one place is so, so toxic because one of the conditions of being anorexic is that you're extremely competitive and there's a lot of comparison around what other people eat and trying to eat less than them or everything is um, a judgment on those around you so being in a place where there was only two of us that were fixated on food and our relationship with food was actually really healthy in the long run it made it made me realize that there were other teenagers who had no funny relationships with food and that gave me a fresh perspective on how I should be acting around and with food. So I became dangerously ill. I, I was about 35 kilograms at nearly six foot, so um, emaciated. I had a lot of difficulty regulating my temperature. My blood sugars were low for many months and I was at risk of heart failure, organ failure and um, essentially death. My BMI was sitting around 12, so anything up below 13 is considered sort of dangerously low and um, most people don't survive from, from that place. So after about eight, nine months, a lot of, lot of work with education around food and a feed, a food a feeding program essentially, I put on enough weight that I was 80% of my expected body weight at my height and I was allowed out of hospital. We were so fortunate in the UK that that's the kind of care that they can provide. Unfortunately here in Australia there's not that many facilities where you can stay for months and months at a time. That's something that I hope will change in the future but I had about eight months of refeeding. Unfortunately one thing that does come with severe malnutrition and weight loss is that you lose actual brain matter. So you lose mass from your brain, just like any other muscle or any fat um, you lose. Um, so you lose cognitive function 
and a sense of reality. So even though physically I was on the mend, emotionally and mentally I hadn't really done the work that was required to let go of those anorexic behaviours and ways of thinking. So after about six months back into life, away from the hospital environment, I did relapse and ended up back where I was, had another five, six months of recovery as an inpatient. And then that's where my behaviour and relationship with food changed. It was still really toxic and unhealthy, but then I developed binge eating disorder, which I later realised is actually quite common when you have gone from a position of malnourishment. So they did studies on people who had been in concentration camps, people who'd been tortured and held hostage and starved, and people that had just lost loads and loads of weight. And a lot of these people later on then um, went to the other extreme, almost like a physiological response to the starvation. Then there was a sort of um, animalistic trance-like state where they just couldn't avoid hunting down food, became the focus of every minute every day it was compulsive um, there was no control so that's what I fell into I went from years of being starved to then years of not being able to stop eating it was really really scary I think one problem is that my weight gain was seen as a positive and I was physically getting more healthy although ironically I had uh, what they call a hiatus hernia, where the lining of my stomach came up out into the esophagus because I was just eating too much volume. My stomach couldn't hold the food in, in the stomach lining, so it came up and out. Um, I had all manner of digestion issues. I had um, oh, the, the most chronic pain. It was uh, My mental state was absolutely diabolical because I hated there was so much guilt associated with that there's so much self-loathing but mostly fear it was really really scary so I I am not a law breaker by nature and I would find myself sneaking into the staff room any time of the day and stealing food stealing the lunches from the teachers at school I was still a student at this point or I would literally just go sieving through the bins on the high street or if I saw a leftover bit of food in a wrapper on the street um, on the pavement I would just eat that I was constantly eating and it became my number one fixation not a conscious thought not a I'm going to seek out and I'm going to rationally go and see what food I can find it was compulsive it was addictive it was out of my control, 110% out of my control. Um, it was really scary, got so bad that actually lost uh, five housemates. So I was sharing a house in Cardiff through university and I was set up a little bit, which is fine. <laughs> Obviously they had every right to, but one of my housemates put a little bag of flour, just propped it inside the cupboard door so that when I opened it, the flour would go everywhere and I couldn't deny that I'd gone into her cupboards and I was, I was taking everybody's food and it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking because I lost a lot of friends, nobody understood it, I didn't understand it myself until I read up on it 
later on and realised that this was a, a condition, a byproduct of years and years of starvation. Um, one thing through all of this time, I'm very, very grateful that I never managed to accomplish. It's a funny word to use, but I could never make myself sick. So I tried. Um, after a binge, I would, um, really, really uncomfortable binge, I would try and bring it all back up. But for whatever reason, my body just didn't have that reflex. I wasn't able to, thankfully, because I, I'm, I'm unsure of if I would have been able to really beat binge eating if I had the ability to purge afterwards. Not being able to purge meant that I had to stop the eating in the first place. So I'll talk a little bit about how I overcame both uh, fear of food and um, the binge eating. And then we'll talk a little bit more um, in the second half about just a more healthy and relaxed approach to food. So if you're if you're just listening out of curiosity and this is all a bit overwhelming and you feel like I'm just glossing over what is a really challenging, confronting subject, then um, please fast forward. But um, I think it's, it's helpful for those that are struggling um, more severely with food to talk about how I overcame my fear of food and then how I overcame binge eating. So the fear of food came about for me, and this may be different for every individual, because I saw it as a lack of control. So actually, it was sort of a learned response. Um, I know for a fact there was many, many years of my life up until I became anorexic that I had no fear of food whatsoever. So I knew, therefore, that it was a learned response. And I signified having to eat with having to give up control. So it was actually more a fear of control or not having control, rather than a fear of the food, but the food acted like a token, acted as sort of like a um, a tangible thing that I could place that fear of lack of control on, such until my brain matter actually started to diminish, and my cognitive function started to go, and then I lost a rational thinking. So I was genuinely fearful of food, when I got to such a low weight that my brain stopped working properly. So I had a, a lady actually recently ask if I could speak to a family friend who they want to try and put on a feeding tube and she was really scared and didn't want her to go on a tube. And I said, well, if she's at a stage where her health is so um, poor and her weight is so low that she is being considered for a tube, unfortunately, no amount of rational talk and thinking is going to get her to have a healthier relationship with food. So um, there is that element that you need. It's almost chicken and egg, catch and chew, but you absolutely need the body to be nourished and the brain to be nourished in order to then implement changing thoughts and fears around food. So one thing that was helpful was being reminded that there was a point in my life where I wasn't afraid of food. So therefore I know or I knew that if I'd felt that way before around food, then surely there was a way to get back to that thinking. So that was really helpful. I think if I hadn't had that kind of intellect or cognitive recognition that of course that makes sense, that as a child I love my food 
and I ate anything and everything, then um, if I couldn't remember that time, then I wouldn't have been able to hold on to that as a, a sort of a hope, as a way to challenge my thinking. So the fear around food was completely irrational to the point that I would cross over the road if I was um, approaching a food shop, a cafe or a bakery or something, because I genuinely believe that the food particles from that food would somehow waft out off of the food through the air and in through my skin cells and into my body and somehow would make me fat. Obviously, that's completely irrational, but I believe that 100%. I believe that the sugars, I don't even know if that are sugars, but the sugars I believe that were in toothpaste, if I use those by brushing my teeth, therefore those would be calories in my mouth, in my body, would make me fat. I believe that if I sat down, um, that people that sat down for ages are called couch potatoes, just an English expression. If I sat down, then I would be a couch potato, therefore I will not sit down. So I used to tie myself up to sleep, I used to stand up all day every day, whether it, it was in a really awkward sociable situation like a school assembly I would just stand in the middle the headmistress would be saying Olivia in front of the whole school Olivia we are not starting until you sit down I refuse to sit down I'd try and prop myself up on my wrists in the car so sort of hover with my thighs off the seat and just clenching my abs um yeah I was very mentally mentally unwell and it was really only when I was much, much physically fitter and healthier, so coming up to that 80% expected body weight, that I could start to see how my thinking was completely irrational. Didn't mean that it was easy to change my thinking, but I had the awareness and recognition that not brushing my teeth for fear of getting calories in my mouth was probably not a healthy way of thinking and not an irrational way of thinking. Once I had the awareness, my favourite word, if you've listened to other podcasts, it's all about awareness. Once I had awareness, then I could challenge, from a third person perspective, my thinking. So I could put myself in a scenario, just a mental scenario, and sort of talk myself through the options. So I don't brush my teeth for fear of getting calories. I may end up not putting on weight, but my teeth are going to be in a really bad way and I'm going to potentially lose my teeth. Or I take the risk of brushing my teeth, maybe I get some calories into my mouth and maybe that will make me put on weight, but I'll have some um, teeth in which they're not going to fall out, which is the better option. And over time, every single situation, I would do a pro and con, I'd have the internal conversation and over time, I could teach myself that actually it was worth the risk. I saw eating as a risk, but it was worth the risk for what it would give me in the long run. So maybe by eating this banana, I could then go and play tennis with dad. So actually, the risk of eating a banana, the payoff was that I got to enjoy playing a sport I love, hanging out with my dad and doing something fun. So it was not necessarily labelling the action of eating as good or bad or even acknowledging the fear it was saying what's the positive consequence for doing this and what's the negative consequence for doing this so here's a piece of pie I haven't had pastry in six years 
what's the worst that could happen? What's the best that could happen? And it was really hard once my mind was in a more rational state to argue, um, you know, in the corner of the negative re um, result. So it was really hard to kind of put that on the pedestal or convince myself that the negative result could be better because in every situation by eating, it gave me a little teeny slice of freedom. It gave me that little bit extra amount of time on my own, time in nature, time without a nurse following me around, time out of hospital. And then once I'd done that, probably thousands of times where I'd had to have that internal conversation, then it became obvious that actually food equals freedom. Eating equals my life back. Eating equals health. Eating equals happiness. Eating equals safety in my in my body, in myself. So then it became, okay, this is still hard. I'm still scared of eating. I still find it challenging. I still have all these horrible thoughts about being a failure, that I've given in to eating, that I don't have control, that I'm going against everything that I've done for the last five years. You know, I had all this negative talk, but deep down, I knew that it was for the best. So that took probably maybe two years, two years of constantly having to put not eating in the cons corner and putting eating in the pros corner until I became much more relaxed around eating. And then it was about introducing new foods and more foods and more regular and more often until such time as the amount of food almost directly equaled the amount of freedom I had in my life. Unfortunately, there wasn't much time between overcoming my fear with food to then it going completely, the pendulum just swung. It felt like overnight abruptly it swung the other way where I simply could not stop eating. And most people don't know this part about my food journey and most of my family and friends probably will think that the challenge, most challenging part was when I was in hospital for two years. Hands down, the most scary, um, confronting, repulsive, lonely, um, self-loathing and negative mindset period was when I could not stop eating. So I really, really feel for people that have food addiction. And really, anorexia and depriving oneself of eating enough is a food addiction. It's just abstinence and it's it's keeping that addiction almost under control. Whereas binge eating is absolute addiction where you cannot stop. And I, I get a little bit annoyed when people talk about a binge as like, oh my God, I binge on like five biscuits. Or, oh, I had like the second half of cake, I feel gross, I had a binge, or I had a whole piece of pizza. Like, really upsets me because those people don't know what it is to binge. So a binge is where you have absolutely no control, almost like in a trance state where you cannot stop. And we're talking, I, may have, I could just list a, a typical binge, I, don't, I wouldn't know for sure exactly how much, but probably a whole bag of um, cereal, a whole packet of family crisps, a whole 10 block of 
penguin chocolate bars, followed by bits of toaster going on at the same time, half defrosted um, hot crust buns, um, some yogurt, whilst you're just cooking a bit of pizza in the in the microwave, you're you're snacking on something else that's so it's it's sort of there's no you get I'm getting a bit <laughs> getting a bit flustered, but essentially it's not you're sitting down at the table with your plate and you've prepared a lovely meal. It's grabbing at this whilst you're half cooking that, whilst you're maybe even just eating something raw out of the freezer because you simply can't wait for the cook time or defrost time. Most of my binges would end in me being in chronic pain. Sometimes I would pass out just in front of the fridge. Um, got to a point where I asked my family to hide food that was triggering for me. So mostly it was sugar-based, high carbohydrate-based food. Unfortunately, that brought about a strange relationship with food where I started to see it as a game. And I started to get a bit of a kind of hit from finding the food and it became kind of exciting, which um, since doing some reading, I've realised that that's quite common with people with other forms of addiction, alcohol, drugs, where actually the finding of it becomes part of the ritual and the excitement and the addictive element of it, the game aspect of it. So that didn't help with, with stopping the binging and unfortunately, bless him, my parents, mostly my dad, were not very imaginative imaginative around the hiding spot. So I knew exactly where the hiding spot for all the, the chocolates and cakes was. Third drawer down on the left in the bedroom wardrobe. So then I would get told off for stealing the food. Um, didn't get in trouble with the law, but I absolutely shoplifted food all the time. Couldn't help myself. Just sort of walked in and started eating as I was going around the the shops. Absolutely not a source of pride. Really challenging to comprehend that I would do that. But um, that went on for about two to three years. Started to get some health problems. I spoke about the hernia. My throat often got blood blisters, really big blood blisters, not from vomiting because I couldn't do that, but sort of 10 pence piece, 50 cents if you're in Australia, size blood blisters would just erupt in the back of my throat once I had to go to hospital because I couldn't breathe because this blood blister just came out of nowhere after eating half a meringue, sort of one of those pavlova things. So my dad had a dinner party and I, I ate what was left and this blood blister just erupted, ulcers, um, my skin was horrific. I would be really groggy, loads of abdominal pain, cramps, um, flatulence, fatigue. Mostly it was my mental health that suffered because I felt absolutely disgusting. Um, so I think one saving grace that helped was sport. And another was a change in approach to trying to control the binges. So amazingly, I hope it didn't show, rugby came into my life. So I went from 35 kilograms to about 75 kilograms, so over doubled my weight in the space of about two years, two to three years. And 
most people that were in the rugby scene thought that I was just taking the sport seriously and I got congratulated from my coach and my strength and conditioning coach for putting on weight and it really looked from the outside like I was just a fanatical rugby fan and wanted to be uh, physically fit for the game. It was 100% a disguise um, for my binge eating and not only did it help me to feel like there was actually a purpose or a, a place where I could I could literally put my weight gain so it, it made it feel less grotesque for me, less scary and less of a source of some way to beat myself up um, but it also was super helpful being in a community, being in a sports team, we trained 25 hours a week, we had two matches every week so obviously when I'm training I'm not binge eating, I would binge on the way to and from training, there was a, sometimes I thought I, I simply can't get through training, I'm going to vomit, I'm going to um, collapse in pain, I just feel so sick, so full but over time, the the act of going to training, being around the team, being around the girls, being on the bus, in that community vibe, I have no doubt that was a huge part of my recovery and potentially even saved my life on a mental um, side because I was so miserable and so lonely, but rugby was fantastic. One thing that really helped me to slow down the binging was to try and maintain three meals a day. So usually I would have more binges at night time or I'd have a whole day of just constant eating, constant binges to the point where at night time I was just exhausted and felt really unwell. So then I would lie in bed and hate myself and tell myself you're disgusting and right, that's it, you're not gonna eat tomorrow, you're not gonna eat until at least 3 p.m. or you're definitely not going to have breakfast, not going to have lunch. And it was so hard physically because I felt so uncomfortable and so full. But once I made myself have breakfast consistently, have lunch consistently and ensure that I didn't miss dinner, so I didn't allow myself to miss meals, it actually meant that I could curb the binges. So I was binging for physical reasons. My body had lost trust of when I was going to get my next fix, my next sugar, my next energy from years and years of starvation. So my body was making me binge, actually, because it was doing its job. It was, there was no trust there, that my sugars had gone up and down, up and down, I'd had years and years of starvation. So my body was going, right, well, I don't know when I'm going to get my next meal. So I best take what I can now. So regulating, giving some trust back to my body by having making myself have those three regular meals, even though I'd have binges all in between, um, it just regulated it to the point where my body would go, ah, oh, I don't need to binge because I know I'm eating in three hours time. Um, trusting that, I couldn't go off hunger. I didn't feel hunger probably for about six years. I'd forgotten what it felt like. And that was one argument I always used in hospital, but I don't feel hungry, I don't feel hungry. Why do I eat? the the only time you're supposed to eat is when you're hungry well obviously my stomach had shrunk to such a small size that I wasn't producing those enzymes that caused the body to feel hunger and then once I was on a refeeding program my my stomach was expanding but I was always 
full. So I always had food in my stomach. Then I had binge eating disorder for years. And so naturally I never give my, gave my body a chance to get to a point where it was, my stomach was empty for long enough to feel hunger. So it was actually talking to mum. And mum was very honest and said, well, sweetheart, you don't have the luxury of feeling hungry, actually, because, and also don't worry about it. You will, you'll feel hunger again, but you cannot wait until you feel hungry to eat because you won't feel hungry until your body starts to regulate and gets back into a rhythm. So allowing and acknowledging myself, uh, acknowledging to myself that I won't feel hunger and allowing myself to eat guilt-free, knowing that just for the time being, I have to eat regardless and I can't beat myself up for eating when I'm not hungry. That was really, really helpful. Um, so those two things were fundamental in helping me to overcome my binges. The final thing, and I think this was the most important piece to overcome anorexia and binge eating, was to ask myself, how am I using the food and do I want to continue to use food for that reason or that purpose in my life? So I was using food by not consuming it when I was anorexic to punish myself, to beat myself up, to essentially end my life, to be cruel to myself. I then started binge eating and initially that was my body's way of going okay let's get some energy in you and let's keep you alive let's um, give you nutrients but then I was binge eating because I was feeling really crap about myself so I'd punish myself for overeating by overeating and it became a horrible vicious cycle and it was I feel gross I feel lonely I feel fat I'm repulsive I've lost control again all of these horrible negative things, I will beat myself up by making myself eat or I will just keep eating because I feel lonely and the only source of comfort and support I have is food. So essentially I was using food in a really negative way and I was hating myself and punishing myself with food. So somewhere along the line, after about a decade of abusing myself with food, I decided I don't want that anymore. I want to love myself. I want to find a way to wake up and honour me, respect me, respect my body, respect my health, find a way to genuinely give myself loving, kind nutrients. I didn't know how I was going to do that, but once I decided that I'd had a blood enough of beating myself up, then I could start to look at my binges as from a third person perspective and sort of go, hang on a minute, are you, are you binging here because you're trying to give yourself com comfort, company, you're treating yourself, you're trying to give yourself love, or is this binge beating yourself up, a source for self-loathing, um, is it coming from a place of hate? So again, awareness. Once I had that awareness and once I decided that actually I wanted to live a life where I respected and loved my body rather than beat it and hate it up, um, hated it and beat it up, then I could start to 
look at each individual time I binged and a little voice in me, a little bit my spirit or whatever it was, my personality would go, actually, no, Vivi, I, I'm not going to do that to you today. I'm going to respect you today. And I am going to not do that to your body. So it's almost stepping back or treating myself like I would hope to treat a loved one. Um, and deciding to love myself, not hate myself. Um, that leads us on. Now we're going to go a little bit, <laughs> a little bit less intense and a little bit less deep. And I just want to move on to certain relationships with food, certain ways we approach it as a society, and a few helpful tips, hopefully, that will help with the subject of food. So the first one is when people label something as a treat. So a treat sometimes, yes, absolutely is just that. It feels really good. It tastes delicious. It makes you feel brilliant. You're enjoying it with others. So it creates a social energy around the consumption of this thing. However, I believe that if there are things that we consume that cannot possibly be a treat. When you actually step back and have a look at what it is that you're eating or putting into your body, are we kidding ourselves by trying to label as a label it as a treat, as a way to maybe justify consuming it? One thing that comes to mind, um, I'm not gonna point out specific brands, but one place I've never eaten at is McDonald's. Personally, Okay, I've just pointed it out, but people may think that that is a treat. Going to McDonald's on a Friday night or taking the kids to McDonald's as a treat or having a happy meal as a treat. I don't believe that McDonald's is essentially food. I don't think it can actually be put into that category. And if you eat McDonald's, does it make you feel better? 20 minutes later, are you feeling energised? Are you feeling nourished? Do you have a good feeling left over in your stomach? Um, when you, I think we've all seen the um, burger that's been left out for three years. When you think about the fact that it doesn't break down because it's got so many chemicals in it. This is just my, my opinion on McDonald's and other fast foods. But when you, when you label something as a treat that maybe necessarily isn't a treat, it's kind of kidding yourself and it's actually doing wrong by yourself so that's one thing I'd love for you to have a little think through times you go oh it's such a treat we went out for like a I don't know triple scoop of Ben and Jerry's and you think okay well maybe one scoop was a treat having three that's actually quite harmful for your body are you treating your body because to me a treat is something that elevates your sense of well-being and your health your mental health your physical state. Um, so yes, something isn't necessarily a treat just because you say it's a treat. Um, also the opposite, something doesn't have to be bad just because you say it's bad. Actually, if it gives you a sense of enjoyment or if you are having it very sparingly or if you need a sudden massive hit of energy because you're about to do a big bit of exercise, I think we just need to be careful with how we label foods. Food ideally should be neutral. 
so that we don't get caught up on restricting or controlling or trying to manipulate how that food fits into our life. I, I'm sure you've heard of superfoods and many marketing, clever marketing ploys will um, profess to their food being a superfood. I came up with what I believe to be a superfood a few years ago. And if a food that I consume has these three properties, I would say it's a superfood. This is just my own definition. If it has two of these qualities, then it's a really good food. If it has one of these qualities, it's still a food. If it has none of these qualities, to me, it's not a food. So what is a superfood? It is nutritious. So it has some kind of nutritional value, whether that's some minerals and vitamins, um, whether it's got a good iron, whether it's got um, good healthy fats, excuse me, um, it's got some nutritional content. It's got to taste good. There is absolutely no point in consuming food if you're not going to enjoy the taste. That's if you want it to be a superfood. So I personally cannot stand the taste of melon. I'm sure it's got some health benefits and I'm sure it's got good energy release, but I do not like the taste of it. That would not be a superfood in my book. So nutritious, tastes good and a good slow energy release if that is how you need the energy to be released. So an appropriate energy release. So if you're about to run a marathon and you need to have some potassium, you need to have some energy and you love the taste of bananas, a superfood in that moment would be the banana, okay? I'm sure berries are superfood, got antioxidants, a goji berry or, oh, there's so many foods that claim to be superfoods, buckwheat, but Obviously, it has to be appropriate for why you're consuming that food. So that's my little takeaway. It takes the stress out of going, oh, have I got all the right superfoods in my kind of smoothie or whatever. Tastes good, nutritional, and the appropriate release of energy. I think it's really important to individualise your food relationship. What I mean by that, I know there's certain foods that my body, for whatever reason, doesn't digest well. So that is dairy for me, um, mints, lentils, chickpeas, I'm sure there's a few others, but there's just four. They all react in my body in the same way, makes me feel very uncomfortable. I spend hours on the toilet and I just feel like my body can't get any nutrients out of them and I can't digest them. I think it's worth, instead of going and getting, or you can, you can go and get a food test, a food tolerance test, but I think it's worth just really being honest with yourself, just because there's a fad, um, or there's a, you know, kale a few years ago was the it food, or the paleo diet was the thing to do, or the five and two was a trendy option, like, just because these things are, are available, doesn't mean it's going to work for your body. I know that I need to consume far more energy and food than most people of my age. That's because I'm super active. I just understand my body really, really well from years of, of having to look closely at my food intake. But I also know what my body can and can't comfortably digest. So don't be afraid if you're out to say, actually, no, I can't 
I can't deal with honey or um, I know that if I need to digest this apple, I need to eat my apple before I eat my main meal, whatever it is, uh, a little bit of kind of health um, uh, health work or homework, whatever you want to call it, would be go and have a little look, take a week, take a month and just assess what actually is a no-go for me. It's fine, especially when you're eating out. I think when you're paying for something, it is absolutely fine to say without this or please cut this off or please add this or please heat this up a little bit or whatever. I think we're maybe being British, I'm worse, but I think we're a little bit too polite when it comes to, oh, well, that's on the menu, so I'll just stick with it. Absolutely not. If you're paying for it, then you have a right to have it how you need. And if your body needs it in a certain way, have this the sauce on the side and then you can choose to add it or not. Um, but first you need to understand what your body can and can't cope with or what is good for your body. Oh, okay, this is a massive topic and this is guilt around food. Now, the guilt itself, I don't believe, is really about the food. That's probably going to sound really strange, so I'll repeat that. When people have a guilt around food, it's probably not about the actual food that you are feeling guilty about. It's more about why the food is acting as the trigger for your guilt. So what are you really feeling guilty about? Is it that by consuming something, let's just say chocolate cake, by consuming that chocolate cake, does that signify that you had a lack of control? Does that signify that you have, in your view, abused your body? If you have a binge of chocolate cake, does that mean that you have therefore done that instead of doing something else, like going to the gym? Or is it that you really didn't have that spare money to go and buy that big chocolate cake and now you've wasted money on it? So really, when you break it down, it's not about the food. It's about what that consumption of the food signifies and what it is you're feeling guilty about. Because we know the body is absolutely geared towards keeping a common status quo. The body is so efficient at maintaining its weight, maintaining its homeostasis, that's all of its internal regulations like temperature, metabolism, um, libido. Like the body is fantastic at regulation. So if we eat a little bit of chocolate cake or even a whole chocolate cake as a one-off isolated event, a month down the line, that will have made absolutely no difference to our body. Wouldn't really have made any difference to our life. Only if we put a tact guilt to it, will it have had any implication. Chances are as well, if you sit in your guilt and if you beat yourself up with the guilt mentally, physically, if you force yourself to go to the gym after consuming chocolate cake or if you hate yourself, berate yourself for hours afterwards, chances are that's going to have more effect, the actual experiencing and sitting in the guilt than the consumption of the chocolate cake in itself. So this is quite tricky and this is something that took me years to appreciate that the food isn't usually the thing that we don't like. It's the consuming of it. It's the guilt we attach to it. It's the relationship we attach to it and why 
are we doing that? What does that stand for? So if you can detach from the guilt, if you can put it in a bigger picture, if you can try not to feel the guilt, the chances are you're not going to repeat that behavior. Annoyingly and ironically, the more you focus on the guilt of something, the more you put that energy out there and the more those patterns tend to spiral. So if I was to eat chocolate cake, I then felt guilty. I then deprived myself of chocolate for a month. I then build up this urge. I then notice chocolate cake everywhere. I then feel even more guilty because it's a constant reminder. My focus is there. My focus is there. And then boom, one day you binge it. And then it creates this cycle of ongoing guilt, ongoing punishment, ongoing um, trying to avoid it and so on. So what's the guilt teaching you? How can you learn from it? And how can you detach it from the actual um, consumption of the food? And that will lessen your urge to eat that thing in the first place. Let's move on to advertising. I know I'm sort of jumping from point to point here, but there's some, some key differences and I don't want to ramble on too much. Um, advertising. I'm really, really angry at advertising and I've learned a lot about how advertising can completely con consumers and misform busy people, people that are really genuinely trying to do the best thing by their families, by themselves. A few key ones to watch out for. When something says lighter, so for instance, lighter butter, that is deliberately put there to try and persuade you that the butter fat content is less than or lighter. When in fact, you can legally put lighter on the box if the actual colour of the butter or the product is lighter than what they used to have. Also, they only need to make one prototype of a darker type, so darker in colour. Say that they've made that, put that out there, even just one unit, then they can go back to the original, so the one they've always had, say light, new, lighter, new, lighter than butter. Well, yes, technically it's lighter in colour than the one unit they made, but by law, that's fine. So they're deceiving you by the fact that it's actually all about the colour, not the fat content. And lighter than what? It really pisses me off when you see 25% less than. Less than what? Less than the one product you've made, just so then you can counteract um, this product that's been around forever off of that one product. So then you can say this is 25% lighter than that. So try not to get confused. Try not to get um, misled. When it comes to juices, juices often are seen as a healthy option for children. But just be careful if you're really wanting a genuine fruit juice. If it says juice drink, so the drink is the word that gives it away, it is not from fruit necessarily. It usually has additives, it's got water, it's got added sugar, okay? So if it is juice from concentrate or just 100% juice or apple juice, Without the word drink, usually it's a much better option than if it says juice drink. If it says the drink, then it is sort of a fake, um, over-sugared version of a juice. You can also taste the difference. And they're just a few, but essentially, if something is being advertised as 
lighter or as trying to be a healthy product or they have to go to the trouble of putting some kind of persuasive messaging on the packaging, chances are it's probably not your best option. So we all know this, but your best option is fresh, is local, um, is seasonal and doesn't need labels. An apple is an apple, although be careful with that as well. We can go down, this is probably a whole other podcast. If there's a tray of 100 apples and they all look identical, hmm, I would just think twice. There's a reason why in nature you don't get the same identical apple time and time again, and that's because it is natural. So it is not normal and natural for all fruit and vegetable to look the same. Carrots used to be purple back in the day. Um, most fruit, if it's really interesting exercise actually, if you Google what, do, what did a banana used to look like or what did an onion used to look like, most fruit and veg we have on our uh, shelves and in the stores available to us today are nothing like what they used to look like back in the day. But they are made to look brighter and shinier and rounder and more perfect and bigger so that we can consume them. So um, gone off on a bit of a tangent, but essentially try and stick to local. I go to a beautiful little Italian greengrocers down in Frio and every single piece of fruit and vegetable looks different. There's some possibly sometimes with a bit of mould. There's some with some weird sprouty like wart bits out of it fantastic that means I know it is not sprayed with preservatives it's not covered in nasty chemicals um yeah it might go off a bit quicker but that also means it's fresher and more authentic and more natural and probably got far more nutrients in it so that's just a little bit about um advertising but also just being conscious of your food choices I want to touch very briefly on children and food this in itself is a huge topic and one that I feel I have to tread very carefully with because my own um, relationship with food as a child was probably quite unusual my parents were very very careful about what we were allowed to eat maybe too careful I don't know um, but we only ate fresh fruit and veg we'd had um, cooked meals every day we were only allowed one boiled sweet on a Saturday after lunch. That was sweetie day. Saturday was sweetie day. One boiled sweet for the whole week. Maybe that led into maybe a bit more of a compulsion around eating sugar. I'm not sure. But the absolute fact is children are like sponges. So they will eat what you provide for them, hopefully. Um, they will follow your eating habits. Their relationship with food is dictated by your relationship with food. So what you provide for them, um, what you make accessible to them, is what they can consume. So it breaks my heart when parents knowingly only give children poor food choices. It's not a treat, guys. This goes back to my first um, point around Junk food is not a treat. Your children are growing beings. They are learning beings, so they need brain food. They are little um, innocent bodies that need all the nutrients that they can get. And they don't have a choice. If you only give them fries and nuggets, 
What nutritional content has that got in it? And that's not fair. If a child wants to develop into the healthiest version of themselves, then they're going to need a beautiful, fresh array of fruit and veg. It pisses me off no end that on menus, um, the kids' menu usually at restaurants is just bland, nutritional, um, void, boring, unhealthy food. Culturally, this is a whole other topic, but we need to change the way that we invite children to partake in eating and the process of, of cooking and understanding of food. So um, making sure that you have options for your children. One thing that is contentious issue, I would say to curb fussy eating, don't allow your children to choose. So let them go hungry. If they're going to refuse to eat and then you quickly come up with another option because you're worried about them being hungry or not having enough to eat um, and then you go and just try and treat them with something like cereal or a bit of toast, well then they're never going to change their habits as a child. If we didn't eat what we were given, then we essentially went to bed hungry. If we didn't finish our main course, then we weren't allowed pudding. Um, pudding would be an apple or something, but if we didn't finish what was on our plates, then we weren't allowed to leave the table. I do feel like children these days potentially aren't given enough structure around their meals and therefore are encouraged to make too much choice when really they don't have the understanding of the nutritional benefits of, of eating a rounded meal and Obviously, children are going to choose foods that are, are sugar-dense um, and perceived as yummy and have all this colourful packaging and they're going to try and get away with not eating their, their fruit and veg. So I think we need to be a little bit more structured to help them make choices and let them understand. Let them know why they need to consume their greens and why they need to have fruit and why actually having a sugary drink before dinner um, or bedtime sorry is not the best option just keep educating them on food on that as well um, waste breaks my heart a little bit when when kids waste food partly I think we don't give the right portion size but um, let kids choose let kids decide you know from five six they'll know whether they're hungry so it's Start with one and then you can have another one after or um, how about you have, you know, this on your plate and then you can try something else or pop it in the fridge and have it as a, a, a mixed meal later down the track, having your leftovers. I think it's important to teach kids these days about waste. Um, obviously, there's children that go without meals. There's, there's many, many people who are malnourished and starving in this world and even if it's a conversation where you don't have what is on the plate and you do end up chucking it away but use that as a way to educate kids I think that's really important um the last thing this is another cultural change that needs to happen I was appalled when I went to Kalgoorlie and I did some work at a school at the options that the teenagers were given. I was really surprised in Australia that kids don't 
tend to get free meals at school, especially the private schools. Um, I think that's really odd. Personally, we got beautiful school meals for lunch. But how are we supposed to encourage healthy, conscious eating if the options aren't going to be the best for our children? Um, Nothing that any one of us can do about that. That was just a point I had written down that I just find it really sad that there's so few healthy options that actually could be so much cheaper if we were just got a bit clever. There's a guy called um, Jamie Oliver. Most of you will have heard of him. He shook up the British school meals um, menus and essentially got turkey twistlers banned because he said there's no turkey in them and they're not food, they're not even edible. Um, and changed the way that schools provided food, made it cheaper and healthier over a few years. That was amazing and I'd love to see something similar here. I'm rambling on. There is so much more we could talk about and um, obviously a very dense topic with lots of different viewpoints, lots of triggers. I know that this might have been quite a challenging episode for a lot of you. I would love any questions that you have. Please um, direct them my way. I do educate on on food and I talk to people with eating disorders still. Um, unfortunately, there's far too many people who have negative food relationships, but um, I'm happy to give advice if I can. Um, we're going to end with the never do this and then a little bit of homework. So I think there's so many nevers when it comes to food, but one that might be helpful is never write the day off or have a whole day of eating poorly just because you might have slipped up or um, given in to something that you didn't want to. So I think we can all relate to this, like you, you have a piece of chocolate at morning tea or you have a bit of cake at lunch and you think, oh, you know what, fuck it, I'm just gonna, whatever, I'm just gonna not go to the gym now or I'm just gonna get a pizza for dinner and have a couple of pints, whatever. Um, but I think if you can, if you can curb the temptation to throw the whole day away just off the back of maybe consuming one thing that you didn't want to um, and then you can kind of end the day in a really positive frame of mind and think actually rather than feeling guilty and beating myself up for choosing to eat something that I didn't want to I didn't give in to the rest of the day being being like that and I actually managed to turn the day around had a lovely salad for dinner or whatever it might be and I still went to the gym so never let the day be completely written off if you make one um, negative or challenging food choice that you hadn't planned on making. And I think, oh, I've just realised we didn't start with our first five. Oh my gosh, I was so keen to jump straight into this episode. We're going to end with our first five. So I'm so sorry for that. Um, try something new this week or try something new every week when it comes around food. Be curious with your food. I'm sure that you could do your food shop if you go in store by habit. You could probably walk down the aisles and know that this is where I get this from, and then next I go second on the left, and then I reach up midway down this aisle on here to get this. Why don't you try going down a different aisle and just try one new food product every week? Get curious with your food. Include your children would be my number two include them in the um, knowledge around food, where it comes from, growing food, cooking of the food. Um, that means 
um, hopefully it will become more of a game and more of a enjoyable process and that hopefully might deter any kind of food fears or um, avoidances that kids sometimes display. Um, be aware of what you're eating. So a little bit like I spoke about before, just because it says something or the advertising is a bit misleading, try and find out maybe where, if you're eating a meat product, where the meat comes from. Try and look at the ingredients that are in it. Has it come from thousands of miles away when actually you could buy the local Cornish pasty from the village? So have a little look about um, what you're eating and just be a bit more aware of what you're putting into your body. I would recommend trying a cultural night. I did this with some friends. So I had an English cook-up before I went back to the UK. So it could be really fun. And even if none of you are from that culture, you can try doing a Vietnamese night or Japanese cooking. And it's just a lovely way to introduce some new cuisine into your life. And even though I was told not to play with food as a kid, I think it's really fun to play with food. So incorporate it into a celebration or a ritual, go for a picnic, marshmallows by the bonfire, making pizzas with smiley faces. I think the more fun you can have with food, the more enjoyable and the more of an occasion it becomes. For me, food now is about family, friends and um, really lovely, beautiful times. It's a way of bringing people together. I just came back from Italy and I really sensed the importance of food and the role that that plays with community. And I really hope that off the back of this podcast that you can all gain some really positive elements around food and the fact that we have to do it every day is challenging when it's an addictive um, trigger. But for most of us, hopefully it's not. And it can be a really enjoyable, um, wonderful part of every single day. So I hope this has given you some insight. This is a long one, but I had a lot to cover. And as always, ask any questions that you might have. And um, keep challenging. Keep being aware. All right. Take care. Bye.